You know, Tyler, sometimes we make mistakes. What What did you do? What did you do? <laughs> I mean, to be fair, anyone could say that. Anyone could be like, I made a mistake because we're all human. But I'm pretty sure in the last episode, I insulted every single person oh. in Dallas. And you know what? I'm blaming you a little bit for that one, too. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I edited the most recent episode and Brittany made her little comment when I was like, whose name's Zeke or Zacharias or whatever? Ezekiel. That's what it was. Yeah. And you were like, uh, Zeke Taylor or whatever his name oh is. Oh my God. The quarterback. And I was for the Dallas Cowboys. And I was like, yep, that sounds right. I guess you know sports and stuff. And I clearly don't. Yeah, well, I got texts from multiple family members. I, you know, kind of failed. And you guys, I think I just lost all credibility about being a Dallas Cowboys fan. But I am fully aware that Dak Prescott is the quarterback. Ezekiel Elliott, he is a running back. So, yes, it's one of those moments. But you know what? I'm going to blame it on the wine. I'm going to blame it on 2020. And hey, shit happens. See, I'm in the camp with the other 85% of our listeners who are like, who the hell are these people you keep talking about? (laughs) I don't know anything about the sports. And I'm like, I'm with y'all. Maybe 80%. (laughs) But hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And you know what? You're allowed to make mistakes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, broadly speaking, yes. Mistakes that are recorded and then sent to thousands of people and, re- and uh, you know, out there forever. It's permanent. Oh, God. Is there someone out there that, like, even if we deleted everything off of Apple, do you think someone's, like, saving our episodes? We are. We're those people. I mean, we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're not going to be deleting anything, though. No, uh, no, no. Don't mean to scare you guys. We're not going anywhere. You're scaring me. I know, you're sweating a little bit. (laughs) No, that's just because it's hot. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, can we talk just for a second about the weather, which is so boring, I know. But it was like 90 degrees today. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's October. I I thought we were done with this. I thought we'd had this conversation. Um, The weather was like, you know what? Summer's over. I'm good. I'm done. You know Um, what? Actually... That's what it did. It was like the conversation was over. It was leaving. It got halfway out the door and turned around and said, you know, no, I I do have something I want to say to that. And we're like, God damn it. Just get cold. (laughs) Um, Seriously, we're probably jinxing ourselves and it's going to be like 85 degrees on Christmas Day. I just want it to be a blizzard. (laughs) I want it like. That is more 2020. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, from December like twelfth until let you know what let's say like February fourth, snowing every day in Texas. Snow covers the entire the desert is covered in snow. The hills, the plains have eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so, those movies are creepy, man. They are. They like, very much are. I don't like those. I don't want to talk about that. So instead, <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm talk- it is like Instead Halloween. Instead, we'll talk though. about murder. <laughs> okay, but that one is just too creepy. Before we talk about murder, um, let's talk about Patreon. Okay, yeah. <laughs> if you guys haven't checked it out, 
Hop on over to Patreon where you can find exclusive murder minis as well as other special content like our Q&A that we did with listeners. We Zoomed with some of you guys. It was so much fun. We talked about that last week. But if you haven't checked out Patreon, hop on over there. If you're needing more content, if you are completely caught up on these episodes, there's like 53 more over there. So just sign up to support and you get access immediately. Also, make sure that you are subscribed. So whatever platform you're listening to us on, just hit that subscribe button. That way you'll be notified every Tuesday when we release a new episode. It'll be right there. Boom. Work is taken care of. So it's funny that we were talking about a movie just a second ago, because that really leads into our topic pretty, like, very well. You know, you say things like, you know, it's funny that... Funny has a very broad, broad, is is it funny or am I cracking <laughs> up right here like, oh my god, we fucking did. We did that. Just saying. Okay, I also... <laughs> maybe I should have wor- used the word ironic. You don't have to be an asshole. This is not an English language <laughs> podcast. Okay. <laughs> no, I know. But I also, uh, there is a part of my brain that is full on triggered when everyone's, whenever I hear anyone <laughs> say, I just think it's funny that, because I'm like, oh God, that's, the that's, no, nothing good ever follows when someone says it with that tone. I just think it's funny. They're not about to tell a joke. They're not about <laughs> to say something they thought, oh, that was cute. That gave me a giggle. Uh-uh. I mean, that's fair. Okay, so I'll start over considering you're an English grammar control freak. I find it ironic a little bit that we were just talking about movies because that flows nicely into our topic. Is that better for you, Tyler? Do you appreciate that? You know, I don't know if that would actually count as irony, um, but (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) I'm not Alanis Morissette. I'm not here to wrongly define ironic. (laughs) You know, I will never stop thinking about the fact that she dated the dude that played Joey in Full House. Dave Coulier? Yeah. And gave him head at a restaurant or something or whatever. Oh my god, I know. (laughs) I just... And that you want to know is about Uncle Joey. Like... (laughs) (laughs) What? There are some of those things that you learn in pop culture and I'm just like... Oh, God, everything has such different meanings. But this is also, excuse me, not an Alanis Morissette podcast. (laughs) It's not not, though. Okay, we haven't had any wine yet, so this is going to be a great episode. Yes. The episode topic is murders that have been made into movies. And this is something, there's a lot, you guys, this is a laundry list because movies Generally, I mean, some are original screenplays, but a lot of them come from books or from real life situations. And some of them are murders that are books and then they're movies. But we looked through some of these really popular movies, ones that everyone really knows. And we dove headfirst into a pool of blood and fun. No, I'm just kidding. We oh decided. Oh my God. <laughs> We decided to look into what were the murders that inspired these movies and what level of truth is there to it. Because, you know, they elaborate in the movies. But we're going to talk about the murders, not the movies. Yeah. Well, and we'll a tell lot you the of movies, the... though. We, we will. But um, I promise you, one, 
I obviously have not seen 90% of the movies, <laughs> but it's interesting when we were going through the list because it was a BuzzFeed article that was like 17 yep. true crime stories that were turned into horror movies. And we'd done like half of them. I know Sylvia Likens, her case was on there. And then yeah. the movie with Ellen Page that they made and just different ones like that. You also did yeah. Amityville Horror. We did mm-hmm. that one last year. We did. But yeah, it is. This is part two, uh, week two of our October Halloween spooktacular true crime bonanza. That is that just rolls off the tongue so well. It's really long. We should make shirts. <laughs> <laughs> true crime Halloween bonanza. <laughs> oh my god! Only if it can have like a little cartoony, like banana split. No, little no, no. little picture, but it's a true crimey one. So maybe chocolate sauce is replaced with blood. No, instead I of think, spoon, it's a knife. I think it should just be a clown. I don't want to wear a clown. <laughs> <laughs> I will not be wearing that shirt then. Well, before we pop popcorn and dip it in blood and talk about movies, what the fuck <laughs> is? What is wrong with you? <laughs> Halloween, it does something to me. Um, okay, <laughs> let's talk about our wine. Yeah, no, I'm, I just, one last thing, <laughs> dipping popcorn in blood, <laughs> I just need, need you to recognize what you said, and then I can, yeah, I can go ahead and wine. but I'm not over that. I'm not fully aware of what I said. It's when you want, like, a little bit of a salty, irony tang to your popcorn. Okay, sorry, I'm done. These are, this is not an uh, old, like, Irish recipe for popcorn. We don't cook with blood here. It's blood sausage popcorn. It's Honestly, a flavor. <laughs> it's one of those I holiday bet. flavors. Oh, God. I bet. I bet you could go to one of those bougie, fancy, millennial popcorn stores, which, one, does anyone actually like popcorn enough to... Wait. Whatever. There's popcorn stores? Oh my god. Yes. And they are like, we have 150 flavors of popcorn. And it's not just like, oh, Vermont white cheddar and stuff. It's like, this one is beef stroganoff and like, whatever flavors. It's a way to eat those meals without actually getting the calories. Is it that kind of shit? No, it's, it's just a popcorn store. I have no idea. But you can get like, three bites of popcorn for $14. So, but I bet you, you could find a blood sausage flavored popcorn at one of those places. It's disgusting. Can can you please tell us about your wine? Okay. Well, I am a full on believer that you do not have to wait for a special occasion to have a special wine or to open some bubbly because you know what? Drinking that wine is a special occasion. That's what makes it. Boom. So I was like, you know what? I'm not celebrating a damn thing, except I'm celebrating me. And uh, I want some bubbly. So today I am drinking the Cook's California Champagne Brut Grand Reserve. And yes, it is Cook's, which is probably the cheapest sparkling wine you can get. No, I think. There's, I mean, there's cheaper, dude. That's true. Cook's is the cheapest good Decent. one, I would yeah. say. I would say it's the cheapest that's decent. Like, because I think Cook's normally is like, I don't know, five or six dollars a bottle, maybe seven. I thought it was more like 10, but I really don't know. 
Well, I mean, it depends on the cooks you get because this bottle, the Grand Res- Brut Grand Reserve, is usually in like the eight to ten range. I overpaid and paid fourteen dollars for it, but oh well. Uh, this one though, it's not their normal cooks, and I would say whereas Andre is really just a mimosa wine. It's not one you drink on its own. No. Regular cooks, you can. It still, you know, is better with mimosa, I think. But I I would totally have a glass of regular cooks. And this is the Grand Reserve, so it's even better. And apparently, what makes it the Grand Reserve is it's a much more complex profile. And it's because they dose it with brandy. So it adds this, like, vanilla and toasty yeast flavors. They microdose brandy into it. That is really interesting because I'm really curious what this is going to taste like. Because brutes aren't sweet or anything. No, it's about the driest uh, kind of bubbly you can get. Which I will say, I prefer non-sweet bubblies, but... I feel like bubbly is the one that when it gets real, real dry because of the bubbles already having like that sharp carbonic acid flavor. I literally forgot the word carbon dioxide, but it is carbonic acid is the not emulsified, but the liquid. Regardless, I feel like real, real dry ones can sometimes be too, too much, too dry. They kind of hurt. And also, yeah. And also sweeter ones... I don't want it candy sweet, but I will still very much enjoy a Swedish bubbly a lot more than I would enjoy a Swedish uh, just like still. Do you mean sweet-ish or Swedish? Both. (laughs) (laughs) Both. This is this is for y'all, all of our Nordic listeners. Uh, No, I mean sweet-ish, like ish sweet. (laughs) Got it. Anyways. The flavor profiles, the vanilla, the yeast that it gets from the brandy blends really well with this just like pleasant fruit and mild floral character. And so it's just a very nice, complex, sparkling wine. I don't really know how they get away with calling it champagne because on the bottle it says California champagne. It's not champagne, y'all. Champagne has to come from the Champagne region of France. This is sparkling wine. But maybe the term California champagne is that, I don't know. But a couple reviews, well, one review I read, said that it is their go-to for sparkling wine and quote-unquote champagne-based cocktails. Uh, They said it is great in a French 75, which made me think of you because that's like one of your go-tos. I love French 75s. Or mimosas, especially for the price. Like, you get the taste of like, oh, you're using a good bubbly when you're not paying that price. And also that it's just a really good party sparkling wine if you're planning on going through a lot of different bottles. Like, this would be a great one. Oh, I need to buy four of them for New Year's, but I don't want to get, like, the bottom barrel. This is a great one. Right. Um, you don't want to buy Vuv, but you also don't want to buy Andre. Exactly. Or buy Andre, because you know what? You're buying wine for other people. They are going to drink what you give them. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Also, Um, at a certain point, you stop tasting it anyway. True. But yeah, people seem to really like it. It sounds like it is a step above regular cooks and is a great value. So I'm going to get into it. 
Also, I know we've talked about it before. The people who scream. The people who scream. I, I can't. I hate it. I hate it so much. Don't scream when someone opens a bottle of champagne. Especially when we're at work and it's 2020. And so Fuck, a loud I even pop about that. is just a loud pop. A loud pop followed by screaming is something much different in the office. And I do not need to go through that kind of fight or flight response at 10 in the morning. I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's so true and it's so sad. It's so yeah. sad that that's so true. So just don't don't scream. Don't do it. Also, you know, if you are in an office and you're going to pop a bottle, maybe be like, oh, hey, everyone, I'm about to pop a bottle of champagne. <laughs> also, give people a heads up. That's a good point. But OK, here we here we go. Okay, and um, no idea how loud that was for y'all, so we might have to edit that to be a little quieter, so you're not <laughs> driving down the highway, just, oh, listen to the podcast. <laughs> but again, I would expect none of y'all to scream, I announced it. Y'all knew I was <laughs> opening it. I'm just saying. Uh, but let's pour. Also, the glass I'm using, it says, it is my only champagne flute, I guess, my only champagne glass. And it says, I'm ready to party from Bridesmaids. And I think I got it from a friend's bachelorette party. Couldn't tell you. I may have taken it from a place after brunch being like, that's cute. I've had 12 mimosas. Put this in your purse. I don't know. but uh, we've all done. And also as a former server and bartender, we know. (laughs) We know when we get to the table and we're like, why are the salt shaker and pepper shaker gone? We know you put them in your purse. We don't care. <laughs> it's just annoying. So it's like, I have to go to the fucking back and get those. And then also, especially with salt and pepper shakers, like, sure, take it. It's cute. Now, how many nasty ass people's hands touch that today? Like, that gets wiped down nightly. Not after every meal. That kid who stuck their hands in the spaghetti sauce. I mean, then it would be wiped down. But I, I'm just <laughs> saying, that's gross. I also have a salt and pepper shaker that I thought was cute at a restaurant. And it grosses me out. And also don't steal. Stealing's bad. Yeah, we're not condoning stealing anything from restaurants. Please don't. Exactly. Especially if they're like mom and pop. Like, y'all, they had to fucking go buy some more of that. Ooh, this smells good, though. It's a great color. So yes, out of my glass that I definitely 100% got from a friend's bachelorette party, probably. Yeah, it just smells very, like, effervescent. Mm, very clean and crisp. Okay, so I have mine. It does not need to aerate because it's white and bubbly. But while it sits there and looks pretty, just like me, tell me about your wine. I think I found a wine that is so, so perfect for this month and our theme of creep. So... I'll be drinking the... Is it a Radiohead wine? <laughs> Good one. It actually is not. It is oh. the 2016 Dead Zed Red from Paso Robles, California. And this wine is a little bit more than I usually spend. But this label, you guys, it's... I hate it so much. It's basically like a zombie with like his jaws detached and it's scary. And I'm going to talk about the label a little bit more later. Yeah. I mean, it's like very well done and very like 
gorgeous, I guess, but I hate it. It's freaky. It's freaking me out. It's super freaky. So this is made by, this wine is from the Tackett Family Vineyards, and it was vented and bottled by Vineyard Squadron Wines. The Dead Zed Red is a blend of 36% Grenache, 30% Zinfandel, 27% Syrah, 6% Morvedge, and 1% Viognier. And it's made by winemaker Leon Tackett. 1% Viognier? Yeah. Like white grape? I don't know. As I was looking at that, I was wondering if there's also a Viognier red grape. Red. But it's 1%, so it's a very small amount. So even if it is a little bit of white, maybe they just wanted to experiment with what that was going to do with it. So it's earthy and very bold with aromas of smoke, chili, and leather. And on the palate, you taste toasted oak from the French and American oak barrels that it's aged in, as well as some savory notes such as bacon, which is something I have never, ever seen in a wine description. I would fuck up a BLT right now. (laughs) Oh, with some good butter lettuce. Oh, Oh, I love butter lettuce. But we're not talking about BLT. God, on homemade sourdough. Anyway. Oh, I'm not even hungry, but now I'm hungry. This wine also has dark berry flavors, which add richness and weight to the wine. It's got a smooth finish and medium tannins. And it's definitely one of those red wines that's best paired with hearty meats and pizza. The label. Back to this label. The guy's name who designed it is Big Chris. And he is of the Church of Horror. Designed this label. And you may recognize it because he has done work for video game design and also developed some art for the music industry for bands like Korn and System of a Down. Don't tell me that doesn't remind you of Korn. Okay. I mean, I don't I don't know if I've ever listened to Korn. You know when where you... you go out into the field and you just like <laughs> listen to it like Russell? And you just have to be there careful. Like, there are mm-hmm. children out there. Honestly, bitch, do it then. Hey. I ain't scared of no children of the Korn. But anyway, I'm really excited to try this wine. I know I don't normally get red blends, but this description made me, like, not only did, was the bottle itself in the label perfect for our Halloween month, but the description of, like, smoky leather, chili, and bacon, I had to know. Yeah. Okay. So let me smoky get into this. Smoky leather, chili, bacon. It's like bacon jerky. Honestly, even though it has both leather and bacon in it the image in my mind i'm getting is like a tempeh bacon like a vegan vegan bacon yeah like tempeh bacon tempeh tempa one of them is a city in arizona one of them is <laughs> a soy protein product true i will never know yeah i don't know the difference either and i'm not even gonna try to guess nope you know one wine that i was thinking about that i haven't had in a long time that i thought may be good for this month but we've already done it Seven Deadly Zins. Ooh, yeah. Or even Freak Show, like something from the Michael David winery. I haven't had one Mm -hmm. of their wines in a long time. Okay. I'm interested to see what this cork looks like. It just says Dead Zed and it's got a bloody handprint. You know, why can, as Americans, why can we not just get with the rest of the world on literally so many issues? But on this specific issue of the way we pronounce the last letter of the alphabet... Z, Z, that sounds awful. Like, can we be better and say Zed? Yeah. But then I just think of, like, the DJ. 
Um, so I'm pouring it so I can smell it. Because when I opened it, it smells sweet. Oh. So it definitely is going to need to breathe. It's medium bodied. It's hard for you to tell. For you, it looks really dark, I know. But it is a medium. Yeah. I can smell the berries, that's for sure. Okay. Well, I have waited long enough, I have decided. And so I think we need to cheers because I'm all, I'm all get into this champagne. All right. Sounds like a plan. Cheers. To making it count. Oh. Ooh. Oh, goodness. There's a lot of things happening right now. Oh, yes. <laughs> Are you going to, like, make love to your champagne? <laughs> I'll make love to... We don't have the rights to that. Um, <laughs> you know, I might. That is still a possibility. But... I'm surprised. I mean, listen, she's cooks. She's no Vuve. Vuve Cliquo. Vuve Click Quack. But, oh my um... god, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is, right? <laughs> no, but damn. I would have to say, granted, my knowledge of bubbly is much more limited than other wines. Because when I think of bubbly I've had, it's like cooks and andre and i've also had vuv and i'm sure i've had other brands and stuff i know i've done different ones on this podcast yeah i mean you've d- you've had proseccos and you've had cavas no that's that is true but i'm thinking like american oh or, vuv uh, is french. not american okay i know it's french it's real champagne but i'm thinking more like sparkling wine like i guess that encompasses all whatever regardless this is solid this is a good one. I'm. It's not even just a good for the price and a good value. This is, yeah, absolutely. If I didn't know, if it wasn't Cooks and I didn't know that brand and know that that's an inexpensive one, I would have no problem like ordering this at a restaurant and getting this. Like, yeah, nice. I want to try this Grand Reserve one. I mean, you should be able to find it. I think most places probably that serve wine or that you can buy a bottle from <laughs> stores not restaurants <laughs> yes well i'm really happy with this wine when i first opened it up the berry aromas hit me in the face and i got scared because it was very berry forward but one thing that i have read no i didn't read this i was told by someone our mother if it smells like fruity it's going to taste very earthy and have di- like it's not going to taste fruity. But if it well, smells earthy and oaky and like all of that, it might taste fruity. So it's the difference. I think it's something the difference in old and new world. Yeah. And that's uh, from our mother who, uh, fun fact, if y'all didn't know, is a certified sommelier. Yeah. Which is super cool because we'll ask her wine questions and she knows a lot more than we do. She always yes. has, though. I mean, true. But when I am tasting this, I very much am getting the smoky notes. That's what's popping out the most to me. Smoky and the chili. I know you're meaning like chili pepper when you say that. But I think like, ooh, I'm chili. And so I'm like, what flavor is that? And then I'm like, oh, right. It's a food. No, I'm in a bowl of chili. Just kidding, I didn't. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh God! It's got jokes like, in it, it has just notes of um, Wolf Brand. 
Um, I make a fantastic chili, but this is not a cooking podcast. It's, it's Again, a... it's not not. <laughs> <laughs> that is accurate. No. So I get those notes of the smoke and the chili and a little bit of that leather and oak is shining through. And the berry flavor is actually pretty buried in there. It's there. It's towards the end. Buried berries. Yeah. You sound like fucking strawberry shortcake. What? <laughs> doesn't doesn't she have like a berry related lisp, basically? Or berry related speech impediment where <laughs> she's like, I'm very angry or I don't know. I don't. <laughs> it was before my time. But it's I think she has a berry. Mine. I have no idea. I think she has a berry-related speech impediment. But anyway, it's very smooth at the end. Those tannins are pretty medium. I highly recommend this for a red blend. It's probably one of the best I've had in a really, really long time. I also know it is one that is closer to that $20 range, and I don't often have wines that are in that range. So if you're looking to find like a spooky wine for some type of theme, if you just really like corn and want to buy a bottle of wine where the same artist designed the label it's super cool it's got his signature on the back i mean like he didn't really sign it but like you can see a signature and it like he is credited on it which i think is really cool because i feel like yeah the label artists are not always credited on the bottles no all right well we have our wine we have our topic we don't have any blood popcorn but that's okay that's okay we don't need it i i don't i don't want it We've talked a lot about corn in this podcast, from <laughs> bloody popcorn to the children of to the band. Yeah, this is. Is a- this a corn cast? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! You started to laugh at your own joke right as you finished it. <laughs> I know. I'm okay. cool like that. So we've got our wine. We've got our topic. You're already refilling your glass. It's so- a little glass. <laughs> It is. It's basically like a shot glass. But it's time. Tell us about what movie murder did you pick or murder into movie? The case I picked, and I'm going to be full on honest, uh, I'll go into like the movies and stuff that came from it. I've never heard of any of them or seen any of them. Yeah, I know. I picked this topic for me, not for you. I know. I picked this topic for everyone else. You did. And I, I am to sit here and be like telling the case while you and everyone else is like oh my god so that's why they did it in the movie and i'm like sure pretty much but the case i chose is the murder of bobby franks and this case was one that was basically one of the biggest cases of all time and like took the country by storm up there with like the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby kind of like infamy and the movie that it spawned um or influenced is Murder by Numbers with, like, Ryan Gosling and Sandra Bullock. It is so good. That is such a fantastic movie. I know you can find it streaming places right now. If you haven't watched it, Tyler, I you know, I would love for you to watch it. You're not going to. But listeners, no. if you haven't watched it, also both of the movies we're going to be talking about in this episode, we highly recommend you watch them. They're both really, really good. I mean, Brittany highly recommends you watch them. I recommend you watch them if you want to. I cannot actually give full-on recommendations because I don't know. But if that sounds like something you want to do, you go right ahead and treat yourself. Do what you want. You know what? It's important to take some time and think about you. 
It's called self-care, and we should all do more of it. We should. But anywho, so my case, the murder of Bobby Franks. It's also sometimes known as the Leopold and Loeb. Loeb? I think it's Loeb. Like Lisa Loeb, the singer. L-O-E-B. That's yeah. Loeb. Yeah, okay. I think so. It's, it's also sometimes known as the Leopold and Loeb case. And the sources I used, the BuzzFeed article that we talked about earlier, the true crime stories that were turned into horror movies, and that's by Valeza Bacoli, an article from Smithsonian Magazine by Simon Batts, the Wikipedia page for Leopold and Loeb, an article in Biography.com by the editors, and an article in History.com by the editors. Editors. So, Nathan Leopold, he was born November 19th of 1904 in Chicago. So, my case, it, it's about 100 years old. It's an old one. But it doesn't feel old. And you'll, you'll kind of see what I mean, but I'm like, oh my god, this could have happened in 2006. I don't like that. No. Nathan Leopold, he was a child prodigy. He claimed to have spoken his first words when he was just four months old. And at the time of the murder, he had completed his undergraduate degree from the University of Chicago with Phi Beta Kappa honors. And he was planning on going to Harvard to study at Harvard Law School. And he graduated with his undergrad. I th- He's 18 or 19. Both of... When the murder happens, both of these guys are 18 or 19. Oh, they're kids. They're kids. And he'd already graduated with his four-year degree. Oh, my God. They're geniuses. Yeah, it's it's that kind of, like, prodigy kids. Leopold reportedly studied 15 languages and could speak five fluently and was nationally recognized as an ornithologist, which is like a bird scientist. Oh, that yeah, I was like, I know this word. I know this word. Birds. Yep, he likes birds. Bird, such an easy word. Ornithologist? I don't even know how to spell that. I'm not even going to try. Fair. Richard Loeb, who's the other one, he was born June 11th, 1905 in Chicago. And just like Leopold, he was like very smart. He skipped a ton of grades in school and actually became the youngest person to ever graduate from University of Michigan, when he graduated at 17. Graduating college at the age of 17. Oh my god. I You can't even smoke or drink and you've got a bachelor's it, degree. It's 1905. They are absolutely smoking and drinking. Or I guess now <laughs> it's the 1920s. Oh my god, is it prohibition? They probably can't drink. I don't think anyone can. Yeah, but that doesn't mean they weren't. I mean, true. They're in Chicago. There's a reason speakeasies exist and I love them. But I also I mean, love... you love speakeasies now. Yeah, so I was, well, I mean, I'm sure I would have loved them then, too. <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> but, yes, you're right. I, I definitely would not want to ever be in that time when they're like, you can't drink. I mean, we couldn't have this podcast. We'd be in jail. Oh, my God. God, that is a really <laughs> crazy thing to think about. That we would be a radical, like, political podcast, basically, because we're having wine. Yeah. Also, but what would our wine reviews be like? We'd be like, this is a wine, actually. It doesn't have a name. Um, It's actually not a wine. It's a moonshine. It's from Timothy. He made it in his bathtub. So you get those notes of enamel and, like, hair. And it it burns everything going in and out. (laughs) I mean, is is that what it would be? 
I'd be like, this is the wine I tried to make in my bathroom. And it does have just a touch of methyl alcohol, which is poisonous and is what makes you go blind. So I'm going to be getting some new glasses. Horrifying. Yes. Don't drink. Don't drink homemade moonshine. If you're going to drink uh, alcohol, make sure it's by a licensed brewer or distiller or thing a thing because you will poison yourself and go blind and die. Or one of those homebrew kits that you can do for like beer and wine because they give you the instructions. Like don't add any extra shit. If you're going to make your own wine, don't try to do it yourself. Beer and wine is safer to drink homemade, but any kind of home distilling, it's why home distilleries are illegal still. Because once you get to the distillation process, you can create methyl alcohol in it instead of ethyl alcohol, which is the kind that's fun, gets you drunk, does all that. Methyl is poisonous, and it's why people used to go blind and die from drinking moonshine. Well, that's really horrifying. I also feel like my lips are turning purple from this wine, but okay. All right. I Um, I just didn't want to talk about dying and going blind. I mean, we're literally doing a murder podcast. (laughs) No, I just realized it as I said it. Continue. Okay. But so again, Loeb, super smart, graduated college at 17. And he was very fond of history and was doing like grad school work in history. But unlike Leopold, he wasn't super like interested in like the intellectual pursuits he was a much more social person he preferred like hang with friends and he played tennis and he read detective novels and he was real into his detective novels and that kind of sets the stage so the two of them at this time in the early 20s they've both graduated and they're doing their postgraduate studies at the university of chicago they had like kind of known each other and been like friendly and stuff when they were younger but now that they're both back they're like real good friends and they develop like a really deep connection and they're also two i mean really young really hyper intelligent people that are able to keep up with each other and challenge each other and they have that connection in a way that like they don't have with anyone else they're kind of the only person who can challenge themselves Because they're so smart and, like, it's just, like, just them. Yeah. And also, they, like, like, liked each other. Oh. Really? some of my... I feel like that surprises me, but it also doesn't. Well, some of my sources said they did. Some of them didn't. But I also know when you're looking at anything historically... There are so many historians that will literally be like, the two women, they were best friends. They were the best of friends. They even lived together. Uh, and they would uh, practice sex with each other at, for probably, you know, to get a husband in the future. So they were good at And it's like, they were lesbians. <laughs> like, <laughs> come on, dude. Just admit it to yourself. They were together. Like, oh my God. How, how many times you read something... And it, you just look up from the page into the camera like you're on The Office. Because they're literally like, they're just such good friends, such gal pals and buddies. And it's like, they're gay, John. <laughs> oh, my God. That, I could just picture that whole scene in my head. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> okay, sorry. Please continue. <laughs> okay. 
So anyway, they're, I'm going to go with, yeah, they into each other. So they were described as inseparable and they had this sexual relationship. So Loeb and Leopold. Leopold, like, is real into Loeb. At least how this source described it. Leopold, who's like the not socially there, like he's that kind of genius who's like, I'm the smartest person you'll ever meet. Not sure how to talk to another person, though. He's just into how just hot and smart and everything Loeb is. And I'm guessing Loeb uh, feels the same way. But Loeb is the one who's a little more fucked up and a little more, I don't know, gives me like sociopathy vibes. Because he basically has created and lives in this fantasy world that he is like the supreme leader and is just the master manipulator of everything. And so he is kind of pushing Leopold into these like criminal pursuits. And the source said using the promise of sexual favors as enticement. But like how many times does that happen when couples murder, friends murder? Like it's there's there's always the ringleader. Someone is mm-hmm. generally pushing the other person or the rest of the people into doing it. Oh, absolutely. But it definitely doesn't, you know, they're both definitely still very much guilty and players in this. Oh, yeah. I'm not, like, oh, alleviating yeah. anyone of their guilt or, like, being guilty. Yeah. So the two of them become obsessed with developing and committing the perfect crime. And then... When Leopold was 19 and Loeb was 18, they settled on what the perfect crime was. They were going to kidnap and murder an an adolescent, a kid. How do you even begin to, number one, that is horrifying. Number two, how do you even begin to put together a plan for the perfect murder? Like, I'm, I'm not trying to sound like morbid or anything, but I feel like a lot of people's ideas of what is perfection when it comes to a murder, like, are very different. No, I'm not, I'm not going to go into details, but this is a weird, awkward plan that obviously they're highly organized and wanting to be the best. But why this? I mean, I, I don't know, but they spent seven months planning it. And you got to remember one thing I just thought of is they both graduated college so early. So I don't know exactly how long it took, but let's say two years took them to go through a four-year program. So the seven months they're spending on this is basically like half the time it took them to graduate college. Like that's how much planning and work they're putting into this. And they planned everything from the method of abduction all the way to how they were going to dispose of the body. Oh my god. And so like for anyone who's not at this highly genius level, we're talking like a couple years of planning. Well, and on May 21st of 1924, they put their plan into action. They got a rental car, they like obscured its plates, and then they were driving around a neighborhood of Chicago to search for a convenient victim. Oh my god, they didn't even have someone in mind. This was for a random someone. I think they had an idea because the victim they chose was 14-year-old Bobby Franks, who was a cousin of Loeb's and I think lived across the street from him. He's such a kid. Yeah. And they, they pull up the car next to Bobby and he's like walking home from school 
And they're like, oh, we can we can give you a ride the rest of the way. And Bobby at first is like, oh, no, I'm good. The house is literally two blocks away. I'm like, literally, I've made it there. So, no, I'm good. But, I mean, this is his cousin and his cousin's friend and these, like, cool older guys. And Bobby's also super into tennis, just like Loeb. Like, that's one of Loeb's big activities. So, Loeb's like, hey, let's talk about this new tennis racket and, like, the tennis game and stuff and chat about that. And so, Bobby's like, you know what? I will get in the car. Like, yeah, hang out hang out with my cool older cousin and stuff and chat about tennis. Like, Why wouldn't yeah. they? Yeah. So, they're in the car and they're driving a little bit. And they're driving much further than two blocks. And so, Bobby's like, okay. Like, I guess we're just hanging out and stuff. Like, this is fine. And Bobby's in the front seat. Loeb is in the back seat. And I think Leopold's driving is the setting the stage. So Loeb reaches over the seat. Like, in the middle of the drive, Loeb reaches over the seat to Bobby, who's in front. Grabs him from behind with his left hand and covers his mouth to stop him from screaming. And he also has a chisel. Like, that was their murder weapon they were going to use was a chisel. So... He has that. He had it, like, I think, hidden kind of next to him. But then he pulls it out and he brings it down on him hard and smashes it into the back of Bobby's head. Oh, my God. And then he he does it again. He rears it back and smashes it again. But Bobby's still conscious. And he's now, like, kind of twisted around in the seat. He's, like, turning back to face Loeb. And he's, like, putting his arms up to protect himself because he's being attacked with a fucking chisel. And then, so Loeb is now smashing it into his forehead. Oh my God. And yeah, the fourth blow, it like gashed a huge hole in his forehead. And so now blood is everywhere. It's across the seat onto Leopold and on the floor of the car. And Bobby's still conscious And so Loeb is like, what the fuck? So he reaches down and basically pulls Bobby out of the front seat over it into the back of the car with him. And he shoves a rag down his throat and like stuffs it as deep as he can. And then he tapes his mouth closed. Again, to suffocate him? Yeah. Like he's been beaten with a fucking chisel at least four times, is now has a rag shoved in his mouth and his mouth taped closed. And at this point, Bobby gets quieter and falls to the floor of the car. And again, they had planned out this perfect crime. But obviously things are not going to plan. You know, he did not expect it to take that many blows to kill Bobby. And also there's a couple other things that start to happen. They drove to a spot like just a few miles south of Chicago to dispose of his body. But while they're disposing of his body, Leopold has something fall out of his jacket, his glasses. Oh, so leaving like his exact glasses with probably like, I mean, glasses are kind of dirty. He's got his DNA on it, I'm sure. It's 1924. Oh, it still probably has his DNA on it. They just don't know to test that. absolutely does yeah and he doesn't notice because he's not wearing the glasses they're like it is coat pocket and they fall out also my response is a perfect 
like taking it back to when you said this could have taken place in 2006. Because I continuously keep forgetting this is the 20s. Yeah. But he doesn't notice his eyeglasses fall out when they're disposing of Bobby's body. And so they get back in the car, return to the city, and they had this plan to send a ransom letter. Because Bobby's dad is like an executive for Sears and Roebuck Company. So Sears. And so they're going to make it look like it is something that this rich guy's child is kidnapped and held for ransom. And I guess that didn't seem like all that crazy, which is why when they were like circling, driving around looking for someone, I'm like, I think y'all just knew who you were looking for. Yeah. You're not looking for someone random. You're looking for someone in particular. Yeah. So they had written a ransom letter and they drop it into the mailbox. And so at 8 a.m. the next morning, the family's going to get this ransom letter. Then Leopold takes the typewriter that he wrote the letter on and destroys it, gets rid of it. The next day, though, and this was much sooner than they thought that he would be found, but Bobby's found. They'd placed his body in a culvert in a kind of remote area, but it wasn't as remote as they thought. I feel like that often happens. Like a place that's remote to you doesn't mean it's remote to everyone. Yeah. So the passerby called the police and Bobby's family, who at this point, they had received the letter and like been talking to police, their child's been kidnapped. So when a child's body is found, they were able to identify him. Yeah, that's Bobby. So the Chicago police, they immediately launch an intensive investigation. There are huge rewards for any information. And Loeb is going about his daily routine quietly. Nothing in his routine has changed. But Leopold is not doing that. Can we just pause for a second and ask the question, why are so many children murdered in Chicago? I mean, it's a huge city, no, especially I, I know, at this but time. I, I know, and I, I feel like Chicago in, I, I don't know, th- there are just so many things that happen in Chicago, and a lot of them deal with young children. I mean, I think of like mm-hmm. John Wayne Gacy, which of course, that's 50 years in the future at this point, but oh my gosh, why are people killing kids? I mean, it's it's the same of why are so many people killed in New York or Los Angeles? There's more but people, also, but also it's just... Like, I mean, I think one thing, though, is when we think 100 years ago, we think about, oh, how much smaller these cities were and they were big for the time. Chicago is about 3 million people now. It was about 3 million people in the 20s. Really? Yeah, it grew and it Maybe not yet. Three million, maybe like two and a half. So actually, I just looked it up because I wanted to be correct. Right now, the estimate is Chicago has 2.69 million people. In 1920, it had 2.701. It's the exact same size as it was in 1920. And in 1930, it had almost 3.4 million people. So like what I'm saying, it's, it's a huge city. Chicago was... Los Angeles before it was. I mean, Chicago has been America's second city forever and only really in the past, I think, since like the 70s. LA became the second city. Yeah. You know, this is such a good point because 
you're right. I don't think about Chicago as a second city, but it's huge. I really like Chicago. It's actually a fantastic, mm-hmm. fantastic city. But they've got a pretty dark history. Although, they do. Who, who doesn't? I mean, shit. So does Seattle. That's that's very true. I see the point yeah. you're making. It's it is one of those unfortunate things that the more people are in a place, the more murders that are going to happen. And also, see, Chicago's always had a very different relationship with its law enforcement than a lot of places. That is true. So while Loeb this whole time is not changing his routine and is just doing his normal, Leopold is not. Leopold is freely speaking to police and reporters and anyone who will talk to him. And he's offering his theories to anyone who will listen. Oh, no, he's no, like, no. Okay, I think this is what happened. And he even told one detective, and I quote, If I were to murder anybody, it would be just such a cocky little son of a bitch as Bobby Franks. Okay, you may as well have just said, and that's why I did it. Yeah. He is one of those guys that is so arrogant that he thinks that this is sealed. It's in the bag. I am getting away scot-free. I can say whatever I want because they're never going to think I did it. I'm too good for this. They'd never think it was me. Oh, I hate him. Exactly. Oh, my God. Oh, he's awful. I feel like this is the guy Ryan Gosling played. Y'all, it's been a really long time since I've seen that movie, but. I don't know. So Loeb is the one who's more social and socially aware. And I think is why he knows, like, I'm not going to change my routine. Leopold, not so much. So, again, police found the glasses that Leopold had left there on accident. And the thing is, it's the 20s. They don't have serial numbers and things like that to track. Oh, my God. So many things didn't exist. I I know. I didn't even think about serial numbers on the glasses. And the prescription and the frame were very common. But... They did have one pretty unique thing, and it was the hinge on the glasses was really unique. And there were only three customers in Chicago who had that specific hinge on the glasses. And two of them had their glasses. They wore them every day. The third one was Leopold. And he didn't have his glasses. Nope. And so police questioned him, and he was like, oh... I mean, yeah, those are my glasses. I was out doing a like a bird watching trip the weekend before. They must have fallen out of my pocket. Wow. Think of the worst cover story ever and that one's even I mean, worse. he's the he's the ornithologist. Oh. And they disposed of Bobby's body in I guess an area that it's like could go bird watching, but it's just like, hmm, really? Really, it, they just happened to fall out in the same place that someone would later dispose of Bobby's body. Too convenient. Sure. Yeah. And then on June 7th, the destroyed typewriter was found in the Jackson Park Lagoon. Man, you throw something in a river, it's always going to be found. Or a lagoon. Is that a river or like more of like a pond? Uh, lagoon's like a lake. Oh. It's a lake that is open to, I mean, in this place it would be Lake Michigan on like a little point of part of it but so before the typewriter was found that was found june 7th but after the glasses they're like hmm police we're gonna question these two guys so they're summoned in for formal questioning on may 29th the day after my birthday many many years before it was my birthday 
Um, so they're brought in for questioning and the police are like, so where were you the night of the murder? And they're like, oh, that night we were uh, in Leopold's car driving around. We picked up these two women uh, and then we dropped him off later uh, near a golf course. But we just we never learned their last names again. This is when I say again, maybe they were by, but I'm like, you gay, though. But OK, sure. I mean, it's also the 20s, so let's be real. Being closeted is a fucking art form, so I don't think the police knew at all. No. But that was their story. They're like, oh, we picked up these girls. We, you know, dropped them off later by the golf course. But Leopold's chauffeur was questioned because also he has a chauffeur. They're rich assholes. Like, that. that's another huge layer of this is they're two white, very privileged rich guys. That's a huge part of this case part of why they thought they could get away with the perfect murder this is a case that delves into privilege so much and -hmm. i know that's why this is one of those cases that sticks with people and that is so well known and is one that if you haven't heard of it directly you've probably heard of it indirectly there are certain aspects of this that pop out in this case Mm -hmm. and anyway i'm gonna let you get back into it but yeah, they had so much privilege. Oh, yeah. And again, part of that is, you know, being very wealthy and stuff. So Leopold had a chauffeur. And again, like I said, his alibis, he was like, nah, we were in my car. We picked up girls. We're driving around, all that. Leopold's chauffeur's question, he's like, no, no, that's not correct. Because I was working on his car. Like his his car needed repairs. And I was repairing it that night. They weren't driving around. And also, the chauffeur's wife was like, yeah, no, that was parked in the garage at their house the, the night of the murder. Like, he was working on it, and it never moved. So, no. And so, the second, police are like, okay, it's not a, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt, you know, maybe. Because the fact that... They got enough benefit of the doubt for having his glasses there. And the police were like, you know, him going on a bird watching thing, you know, walking across this murder scene that, yeah, that makes sense. Like, that's fucking privilege in action. But the second that it's like, oh, no, there is no getting around this. They lied to us about their alibi. They were brought in and interrogated. And the two of them confessed to the murder. Loeb claimed that leopold struck the fatal blow leopold is obviously saying the opposite like oh Loeb was the one who struck the fatal blow did the actual murder but the two of them they confessed and the police had evidence now they had the typewriter the glasses they had the fam- family relation and so the case is pretty strong against them yeah and the state's attorney of cook county robert crow he was seeking the death penalty so the families both hired a very prominent criminal defense attorney, Clarence Darrow. He was going to represent the two boys, the two men. Let's be real. They're 18, 19, but this is not, oh, boys that like fucked up and didn't know better. They knew better. They knew better. They were, you know, when you think about the fact that they went through school so quickly and were so highly intelligent, 
There are parts of their brains that, yes, were still very adolescent and they were children. But the parts of their brain that they used to plan this murder was very adult. Oh, absolutely. So with their lawyer's advice and everything, they chose to enter a guilty plea. Because if they did that, then there wouldn't be a jury to decide. Because they know they're not going to be able to win over a jury. The jury is going to want their heads, especially with how huge this case is. Yeah. I mean, it's being called the crime of the century. And so if they plead guilty, there's a judge that determines the verdict. So they only have to play and manipulate one person instead of an entire jury. That's a good plan. Yeah. Well, and their lawyer, Darrow, he his plan to keep them to keep the death penalty off the table was he was going to show that his clients, they were mentally ill and that their actions were because of childhood trauma, which please, please point to me the childhood trauma that leads you to murdering someone like this and planning it out for months. That's the part that gets me, the planning it out for months. If this was some random attack, yeah, then I think you could play the whole child trauma card yeah i I mean i can i am not a psychologist i'm not a therapist i don't actually have an education to make any of these assumptions but to me it seems like it would be more likely if it was a childhood trauma to be something random and not so planned but exactly i don't know if that's true I, i don't know so the public was very closely following this case i mean again it's the crime of the century And both the prosecution and the defense, they have a huge number of witnesses and, like, uh, experts, I guess, not witnesses, of leading psychologists that are on the stand to help make their case. Some for the defense are being like, yeah, you know, this is how, like, traumatized they are and this is how the body and the mind reacts to that. And then for the prosecution, they're going in on, like, how fucked up this is, how much planning it took, what the kind of like manipulative criminal masterminds they must be. And during the closing remarks, their lawyer, Darrow, he gave a very impassioned speech. And these closing remarks lasted three days. I'm sorry, that's a lot of closing. I know. Part of me wants to imagine it was his speech that that lasted three days. Like they would get in there and he'd be like, Picking up from where I left off. Oh, that is what I was picturing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And everyone is like, shut the fuck up. That's totally what I'm picturing. How else do closing remarks last that long? I mean, I don't don't know. (laughs) But yeah, so three days of closing remarks. He gives this huge impassioned speech and his speech worked. Well, he spent three days on it and like doing it. The prep was probably longer. Yeah. True, but it helped sway the judge. So oh on God. September 10th of 1924, Leopold and Loeb, they were spared the death penalty. And they each got a sentence of life plus 99 years for the kidnapping and murder. You know, I'm really glad they were still convicted because there was a there was a part of me that was really scared. You were about to say that the judge was like, y'all were mentally ill. You didn't you didn't know what you're doing. No sentence for you. So I'm glad they still got life because they did it. They planned it. They're guilty. 
But I mean, obviously, I'm glad they didn't get the death penalty. I don't think anyone should. So they're both sent to prison. And while serving out his sentence in Joliet, Illinois, Loeb was attacked and killed in 1936 by his cellmate, James Day. So James Day claimed that Loeb had made sexual advances toward him. And so he was defending himself. Whether or not that's true, I don't know, because I think Loeb had like 56 cuts on his body, and the first one, his throat had been cut with a razor blade, like, from behind, so, you know, how much that's defending yourself, I don't know. I.e., I don't think so. Also, I'm so tired of this fucking gay panic bullshit. Like, the fact that I think in some place in the States it's still legal, it might It might be illegal at this point, but it's only been a few years. Uh, But the gay panic defense worked and was used when transgender women were murdered by cisgender men. The defense of, you know, her her genitals didn't didn't match what I what I thought. So I went into a blind panic and murdered her. And so many, so many men got off. The judges were like, you know what? I would murder someone, too, if they were transgender. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And of course, disproportionately, it is it affected so many trans women of color. The whole, like, gay panic defense is one of the things oh. that makes me angrier than probably any other defense. For me, it's one of the things that I think some people don't realize there is this image of like deceitful trans or gay people. And it's like, what you're not realizing is that things like the fact that the gay panic defense was a full on thing. So the woman you're on a date with her telling you, Hey, by the way, I want to let you know, like I don't have a vagina. She knows can get her murdered. Yeah. Anyway, this is a different topic. But regardless, he basically, James Day used the gay panic defense of like, oh, he hit on me, so I murdered him. And uh, yeah, so Loeb was killed in prison in 1936. Leopold, though, Leopold actually got parole in March of 1958. Really? Yeah, when he's like 53, I think, something like that. He got parole. He'd been in prison for almost 34 years. Yeah. On a life plus 99. But he got parole, and the second he did, he fled to Puerto Rico, where he taught maths at the University of Puerto Rico, and he published a book on ornithology. He's still into birds. He got married in 1961, and then on August 30th of 1971... He died of a heart attack from diabetes. But for the last 13 years of his life, he was free. I don't think someone with a life sentence should be allowed to get parole. Especially life plus 99. I mean, I know I know parole doesn't work like this, but I feel like it should be more of a system of like, it knocks a certain amount off of your time. So maybe... Yeah, you can get parole, but, well, you've been sentenced to 640 years, so you can get all the parole you want. You're not going anywhere because of the severity of your crime. But I say that, 
I'm also someone who is really for the rehabilitative prison system. And so it's hard to make that argument of like, I mean, I don't think he was rehabilitated at all, but it's hard to make the argument of like, well, you should stay there forever because then that goes completely against what rehabilitation is and stands for. I don't uh, it's it's one of those where I'm like, I feel so many certain ways about this that it makes me it makes me feel things that contradict my beliefs and try to hold both as true. But yeah, I don't like that after everything he did, he got out in 30 years. And I think a huge part of that is because of the privilege he had as a wealthy white man. Exactly. And that's a great transition into what I was thinking, because I say that people who have a life sentence shouldn't get parole. But unfortunately, there are so many people who are innocent, who were convicted, and they have a life sentence and they can't get parole. And it's like, Mm -hmm. so there are, and I have these same moments of thought that you do, where These types of decisions and these types of beliefs are difficult because there's circumstances that make one thing more appropriate for one circumstance and highly inappropriate for another. And it's Mm -hmm. hard to have this solid line in the sand, which is not what we have right now. We don't have a solid line in the sand because of things like privilege and race. And, you know, he was this white man with privilege and he got paroled if he were a black man no he would have been denied parole every single time no matter what he would have gotten the death penalty well actually yes so it's a very difficult and confusing thing and i think it's okay to feel conflicted and confused because it is confusing and you can have multiple feelings But at the end of the day, I believe in not ever. It's not an eye for an eye. That should never be the system. Oh, no, no, no. Absolutely not. It's not an eye for an eye. And that's what the death penalty is for me. It's like, well, you killed someone. Well, we're going to kill you. And I'm like, cool, awesome. Then your state is a murderer. Exactly. These things are very complicated. I hate that this guy got out and immediately escaped. So... This case, again, like we mentioned at the beginning, the movie from the list uh, that it inspired is Murder by Numbers, which was like in 2002 was based off of it. But it's also been the inspiration for a lot of other things. There was a play in 1929 by Patrick Hamilton called Rope. And then the Alfred Hitchcock film Rope in the 40s was also i mean it was based off the play based off this crime the film compulsion in the 50s the film swoon in 1992 also based on it a lot of things i've never heard of all based on this but that is my case that is the murder of bobby franks that's a horrifying case and a really scary case because he literally killed his cousin i hate this So, Brittany, what is your case that became a movie, murdered a movie? What is your case? I also chose a really iconic one. I am doing the Clutter Family Murders, which most people will 
identify and recognize this as the murders that were in the book and movie in cold blood. So the sources I used, I used an article from the Mom Museum. It's the National Museum of Organized Crime and Law Enforcement by Jeff Burbank. An article from the Crime Archives, literally like crimearchives.net. The In Cold Blood book page on Goodreads. An article from Realtor.com by Claire Trapasso and Natalie Way. Always Realtor.com. You'll get it when you hear it. <laughs> Where they try to sell the house? Just wait. An article on The Pitch by Dan Leibarger. And the Wikipedia article on the Clutter family murders. So like I said, the murder of the Clutter family, it inspired a book as well as a movie. Most of us have heard of and some have read Truman Capote's book In Cold Blood, which was first published in 1965, where he describes the 1959 Clutter family murders in Holcomb, Kansas in a lot of detail. And if you think that name sounds familiar and you're like, Truman Capote, there's like a movie about him. There definitely is. There's a lot of stuff about him. But also, yes, this is the same guy who wrote the Breakfast at Tiffany's book. Okay, so this is the guy that like Philip Seymour Hoffman played in that one movie. And he kind of talked like this. Yes. Okay. I don't know what the movie is. I don't know why I know that and have that image in my mind of Philip Seymour Hoffman having a very small, high-pitched voice and knowing that it's Truman Capote because I don't know who that is, but... The movie movie you're referring to is Capote. So So I want to read the description of this book from Goodreads because I think it really captures a lot of what made this case so huge. And I'll go into details throughout talking about what happened and why this is a case that everyone knows. So the description of the book, as Truman Capote reconstructs the murder and the investigation that led to the capture and execution of the killers, he generates both mesmerizing suspense and astonishing empathy. At the center of his study are the amoral young killers, Perry Smith and Dick Hickcock, who vividly drawn by Capote are shown to be reprehensible yet entirely and frighteningly human. So that sounds like a good book, Oh, but also it real. So this, (laughs) this book, like I was saying, it inspired a movie of the same name in cold blood in 1967 and Robert Blake, who, you know, has, Oh, he's gotten himself into his own bits of murder trouble. Oh, Oh, didn't he like killed his wife right allegedly allegedly yes okay well he also carried an uncanny resemblance to perry smith and so he portrayed smith in the film and scott wilson portrayed hickok and you might recognize his name because he also played herschel green in the walking dead these were the two murderers of our case you'll hear more about them soon so in 1959 Holcomb, Kansas had a population of less than 300. This is a very small town. Yeah. And part of that 300 was the Clutter family. Herb, who was 48, his wife Bonnie, who was 45, their daughter Nancy, who was 16, their son Kenyon, who was 15, and then they also had two other daughters, Beverly and Ivana, who were older and already out of the home. So her Clutter 
he was a prosperous farmer in western Kansas. Just over a decade earlier, in 1949, their two-story farmhouse designed and built by the Clutters, it was really famous, and it's because it was very stylish and modern, and it was an achievement in the community when it was completed in 1948 at a cost of $40,000, which, nothing to us today, a lot then. I mean, that I am always so bad at, like... Which would be blank amount today, because you could tell me $40,000, that's 280000 today. And it'd be like, wow, that's expensive for Western Kansas. Or you could be like, that's $4.1 million. And I'd be like, oh my god, both are true. Who knows? It's not that big, but this house had like two and a half bathrooms. And it, they were in rural America, rural Kansas. And not everyone even had running water. So the fact that they had two and a half baths. That was a big deal. Damn. At least one local newspaper, they took photos of the family in front of the house and they put it on the cover. So the Clutters would also host family gatherings and parties and meetings for the local 4-H club and the Farm Bureau there. Again, their house was well known for many reasons. This blonde brick house stood out among the white stucco and wood siding homes that were very popular at the time. So not only was it bigger, it had plumbing, people went there for parties. It also looked different. So Herb Clutter, he was Kansas State University educated. He used innovative techniques to grow wheat and other crops. And he earned coverage on Edward R. Murrow's see it now in the new york times so there's a oh. there's a lot of things that are making this family very visible to a lot of people this rural western kansas home is in the fucking new york times their home was in the local papers herb was in the new york times for his innovative crop growing techniques shit okay so richard also known as dick hickok and perry smith They were two ex-convicts. They had recently been paroled from the Kansas State Penitentiary. And Floyd Wells, who was a former cellmate of Hickok's, he'd been a farmhand for Herb Clutter. Wells told Hickok that Clutter kept large amounts of cash in his safe. And so after Hickok talked to Wells, he soon hitched the idea to steal the safe and start a new life in Mexico. He was like, oh, this will be easy. I'm going to go to this farmhouse. I'm going to steal all this money and I'm going to run away to Mexico. Yeah, I know. It's like a very like 60s, like movie themed idea. Yeah. Hickok later contracted Smith, who was also a former cellmate of his, about committing the robbery with him. AKA, he needed help and he was like, who's one of my guys that's out? Oh, yeah, Smith. I'll call him. So on the night of November 14th, 1959, Hickok and Smith drove more than 400 miles across the state of Kansas. They were heading for the Clutter residence in order to execute this plan. And it's just to steal to rob them? Yeah. Because Herb Herb is a really wealthy guy. Do you ever, like, sometimes, is it Herb or Herb? Like, when it's a name, I know it's always Herb, but I struggle because I say Herb for plants. (laughs) Honestly, I think we should take a page out of our British listeners and just say Herb. (laughs) 
So, yeah, they believed that Herb had just tons of money. Again, very well-known man. He's been in the papers. He's got this big fancy house. Well, in Hickok's former cellmate, Wells, had been a farmhand for Herb. So they felt like that was a very reputable source. They were like, oh, no, he worked for him. He knows there's money everywhere. So, yeah. Yeah. This whole plan was to go steal the safe, get all the money, and run away to Mexico. So in the early morning hours of November 15th, they arrived in Holcomb and they found the clutter home. They entered through an unlocked door while the family slept. When they got there, they expected to find a safe full of loot. They did not know that Herb, he paid all of his bills by check. And so he's not going to have a lot of money in his house in the middle of the night. Do people just fill their houses with money? Like, if someone tried to rob me now, I'd be like, do you want this jar of change and maybe, like, the two ones I have in my wallet? (laughs) No, they're going to steal your stuff like your TV. But still, nothing is going to be worth what they could face by robbing you. Exactly. I'm like, Nor is it going to help them get away. Because you got to sell shit like TVs if you steal it, you know? I know. They just think that rich people just, like, hide money in the wall. Do rich people hide money in the walls? I mean, I I don't. I live in an apartment, though. <laughs> if I knew I could just buy some new drywall, is that my new Wells Fargo? I, I don't know. I think some people did hide money in the walls. I think there are a lot of people that hide money in their homes. But if you just put it in, like, a 401k, it'll get interest. Put it in a savings account. It gets point zero 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 one interest, but hey, that extra four cents <laughs> a month, you're like, oh, shit. Okay, well, um, no, don't put it in a savings account. It's literally, that's not where you grow money. Put it in a Roth. Better a savings account than your drywall. So, again, they're expecting a lot of money, but her, Herb paid his bills by check. And so they they rouse Herb, Bonnie, Nancy, and Kenyon, and they discovered there was no safe. So they bound and gagged the four of them and continued to search for money. They were like, there has got to be something of value in this home. Except there wasn't. Beverly and her sister, Ivana, they were not living at the clutter home at the time, like I said earlier. And so they were not a part of this. Smith and Hickok... They were determined to leave no witnesses, and so they debated what to do. Smith, who was notoriously unstable and prone to violent acts and rage, he slit Herb Clutter's throat and then shot him in the head. Oh, shit. Smith later recounted in his confession, I didn't want to harm the man. I thought he was a very nice gentleman, soft-spoken. I thought so right up to the moment I cut his throat. So, like, obviously... What the fuck? Obviously, he's very unstable. Yeah. Kenyon, Nancy, and Bonnie were also murdered, each by a single shotgun shotgun blast to the head. Herb was killed in the basement, Bonnie in her bed. Nancy was bound with rope and killed in her bed, and Kenyon was killed on the couch. He had been bound, gagged, and shot in the head. After the murders, Smith and Hickok left the house with a Zenith radio, a pair of binoculars, and less than $50 in cash. That's it. They got a radio, binoculars, and enough money for a couple meals. 
and murdered a family. Murdered an entire family in cold blood. Literally where the title's from. Like, I mean, when you think about it, it's very fitting in a very, very dark way. Yeah. So when no one answered the door the next morning, Nancy's friend, who was also named Nancy, Nancy Ewald, went inside to check on her. Nancy is 16 years old. Her friend is also oh a teenager. Oh, my God. She walks in and she saw Nancy in bed. And she testified later in trial to this. And she said she thought she was sleeping or something. So she went over to shake her to wake her up. Like, come on, get up, girl. And then she saw oh. blood all over the wall. And then later, when the coroner testified, he said, I've seen some gory things in my time, but nothing as gory as that. What we found in the clutter house Sunday morning. Truman Capote took an immediate interest in the case when he read an account of the crime in the New York Times two days after it happened. He was initially interested in how the murderers affected the community, and so he arrived to Kansas a few days later with To Kill a Mockingbird author Nellie Harper Lee. At the time, the case was still unsolved, and Hickok and Smith, they left very few clues. So there was not a lot to go off of. Yeah, I mean, it's these two guys not from town who just basically show up out of nowhere and leave. I mean, I'm trying to think if, you know, they're not doing fingerprint, they're not doing DNA, like, unless they straight up told someone back home, like, oh, we're going to go murder this family. It'll be on the news. How are you going to catch them? Exactly. And another interesting, this is like not dealing with the murderers but another really interesting aspect was that harper lee and truman capote were good friends because to kill a mockingbird is another very well-known crime piece of literature yeah and the fact that the two of them went to kansas and they were like we're gonna like essentially like we're gonna crack this wide open like nothing was solved at the time that they arrived so like I said, Hickok and Smith left very few clues, but there was a pair of footprints and this was only visible in an underexposed photograph. And that was their piece of evidence. Together, Capote and Lee interviewed local residents and investigators assigned to the case, and they took thousands of pages of notes because again, they were there every step of the way through this investigation. That is why Truman Capote's book, In Cold Blood, well, yes, it is a piece of literature and it is written that way. It's written like a novel. It's nonfiction, but there are certain parts of the book that people find controversial, which um, I know one of them is Bonnie's mental illness. A lot of people disagree with the way she's portrayed. She was Herb's wife. Most likely she was suffering from probably like depression after having kids or like she was just really depressed after having children. Yeah. And just her life having a hard time. Depression's a thing, everyone, no matter how well off or wealthy you are. So there are parts of this book that are controversial. But if you're looking for a source that has the most information, it's this novel. On the basis of a tip from Wells... That's the guy that gave Clutter the idea. He was like, yo, Herb's got some money. Go steal it, basically. He actually contacted the prison warden after hearing about the murders. He was basically like, uh, yo, so, hey, I've got some information. This one's, like, kind of on me, but, like, I can tell you exactly who did this. 
He probably got yeah. some, he probably got something out of it. He was probably like fucking sick and smart and was like, ooh, I'm going to tell this dumbass to go do this. And he fucking did it. And Wells is like, using that as information. I mean, that or he's in prison. What was he in prison for? I don't know. I mean, shit, he could have been in prison for, I don't know, defrauding a school. Let's say that's what he did. He defrauded a school. And then he hears this and he's like, oh my god, that, I did this. Like, I, I'm the one who told him about this. No. Like, still having that piece of knowledge, maybe not the guilt, but having that piece of knowledge of, like, I, I told them to, like, go rob this place and his family's dead, like, that is never anything I wanted. This is horrible. This is horrifying. Yeah. Oh my God. Am I the only person that knows that can put this together? Like, yeah. Well, and that's true because he was telling um, Hickok about it to go steal the money, not to murder the family. Yeah. Hickok and Smith were identified as suspects and arrested in Las Vegas on December 30th, 1959. So like a month and a half after it happened, about six weeks. They pleaded temporary insanity at the trial, but local GPs evaluated the accused and pronounced them sane. They were like, not y'all are fit to go to trial. And the temporary insanity plea, like, I get it. It is legit in some cases, but it always just seems like, oh, no, I was out of my mind for that moment, like for this case and all the consequences. I'm not. And like, you know, clearly that's why we can't plead like full on the insanity defense but just temporary just we just we had a break and during that time drove 400 miles to rob a family murdered them then drove to vegas but now we you know now we good you're not good smith claimed in his oral confession that hickok murdered the two women bonnie and nancy and when he was asked to sign his confession though smith refused According to Capote, he wanted to accept responsibility for all four of the killings because he said he was sorry for Dick's mother, I guess that Dick was caught, and said she's a real sweet person. Hickok always maintained that Smith committed all four of the killings. So we really don't know who did what murders, but the fact is they were both involved and they're both guilty. Yeah. They were eventually executed by the state of Kansas in 1965. Capote ultimately spent about six years working on his book, and it was finally published in 1965, and In Cold Blood was an instant success. Today, it is the second best-selling true crime book in publishing history, just behind Vincent Biglosi's 1974 book, Helter Skelter, which is about the Manson murders. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know. I I know Helter Skelter. Not know as in have read, but like, gotcha. But the thing is, this is one of those books that really, I mean, we've talked about this before. People have always been fascinated by true crime. Books like yeah. this brought it even more to the forefront. It brought it forward. It was something where it became like, like, think about it. In the 60s, you're like, you're talking about this book you read. You're not necessarily talking about this crazy thing. These news, like, it's true, but you're talking about this very, like, piece of literature. I mean, would you compare it to, like, the impact that, like, Serial had on the Anand Syed case and how that, I feel like 
at least from my perspective, Serial brought the true crime podcast into a different and much more mainstream form. And while that case was big, it's now something you say Adnan Syed, everyone knows you're talking about and they know it serial yeah i that's that's a really really good comparison because this novel put true crime like on the map and what's horrific to look back at this knowing what we know now about the 70s and 80s there's a whole lot of shit about to happen yeah it's just weird to think the perspective of like we would not have this podcast or couldn't have this podcast in the same way without Truman fucking Capote. That's weird. <laughs> I know. So today, the Clutter House is still there. It's still there in Kansas. Realtor.com. Here you go. It's probably <laughs> one of the most famous houses in the United States. Um, and this was said by Leonard Matter. He was one of the house's former owners um, he has since passed away, but he was quoted saying this in the mid nineties. And he also said, we have cars come down every day from England, France, Germany, Japan, you name it. So when I talk about a case that is so widely known, this one's worldwide. Oh, it's a pretty house. It is. Um, and so in an effort, they're like, oh my God, all these people are driving by our homes, driving us crazy. So they're like, let's turn this negative into a positive. The Matters began offering tours of the home in the 1990s. Uh, they charged $5 a visitor, and they even considered turning it into a bed and breakfast. Their business was oh. quickly shut down because they actually didn't have rights to run a business out of the home. But there were things like people have photos of the 90s when they would go and tour this home and in the basement where Herb was murdered. There's a big stain, and they're like, yeah, that's his blood stain. Whether or not that's true, I don't know, but. Uh, see, I I get the fascination with true crime. I mean, obviously, look at us. We sit here and do a true crime podcast every week, and I understand the fascination. True crime tourism bothers me because I feel like it's so often done in a way of like this is so interesting and crazy and we're here and it's like never done in a way of are you understanding the gravity of what you did or of what happened here and that you're standing where a 16 year old girl was shot in her bed i know and her friend came and like uh, it bothers me i get that yeah, well, and I just feel like it's so often done for the interestingness of it and not the reverence for those that were murdered there. Yeah. You know, it's it's the, oh, I'm going to take a selfie because I'm here and like, oh my God, the murders happened. But if you twist that and we're saying to yourself, I'm going to take a selfie here because I'm here where this family was shot to death. I'm right here on the couch where Kenyon had been tied up and shot in the head. Like, because the reality is, that's the severity of what you're talking about. I know. I, and I just feel like the reverence and the understanding of the severity of, like, what it is gets lost in the tourism. I agree. 
So the matters have since passed away. And so as of October 2019, the Clutter family home is for sale again. And one thing that's very interesting is it is mostly in its original state. This home looks exactly like it did in 1959. It has not been updated. Nothing. Wow. I I know homes where murders have taken place often sell for a little bit less than the market because you do have to disclose what happened and everyone knows what happened here. But when I was reading this article, and yes, this is the information from the Realtor.com article, there's not a lot of people that are super interested in this. Like, Holcomb... I don't want to fucking live there. It's also western Kansas. Like, no one wants to live there. Well, and also the town is still small. There's like 2,000 people there now. So bigger than it was, but it's still really small. And so at a time when true crime, it's widely popular, like we were talking about books, TV, podcasts, it really seems like these obsessions aren't going to fade. And so for anyone who buys this home, they are going to have to deal with the attention and their own feelings about the home. Like obviously they'll think about their own feelings before they buy it, but part of what comes with that buy is knowing you're going to have people driving by all the time because this is a house that yeah. people know and people are obsessed with true crime right now and surprisingly this home is not going for anything that you would imagine i think the the rate is like 150 to 200 thousand dollars huh okay i mean again that's a lot for western kansas it is a lot for western kansas and also this house does have 2.5 baths like We have the image from what I was talking about of it being like this amazingly huge home in 1949 when it was built, or I think it was completed in 48. I think that's what I said. I mean, I guess it... But like... It also probably comes with land, so... Yes, but also we're not talking about a house that is super modern and like literally it looks like it did in the 50s. It needs a lot of work, so... I, I mean, I was. It's not a half million dollar home or anything. When you were describing it, I was imagining like the Kansas Versace mansion, and it's not. No, it may have felt like that for the city at the time, but it's very much not that now. But that is the Clutter family murders, well known in Truman Capote's book *In Cold Blood* and the movie of the same name. There's also a, I think there was a documentary that was made in. Oh, I want to say 2017. It was recent, but it's called like In Cold Blood and it's about these murders also. So there are more than just the original movie and book. You can find more information on this if you want to. Okay. Because I, I mean, this is the first time I've heard of this case. I know there, I feel like there weren't a ton of times where I'm popping in because I'm sitting here listening. I don't know how I've never heard of this, but I have heard... Not the phrase, but I've heard the title In Cold Blood. I don't know if it's been in reference to the book, the movie, or the newer series. Honestly, because of me, probably leaning more towards the 2017. Well, but the thing is, this is one of those books that everyone hears about. In Cold Blood is a title that a lot of people know, even if they don't know. And it's because it is a literary masterpiece. Like, this was Capote's work that put him on the map. And so just because you haven't read it doesn't mean you haven't heard of it. And I read it about 10 years ago. 
I actually had a book club that I was in after college with some friends. And this was one of the books we read. And I recently found it in a used bookstore. And I'm going to read it again because a lot of it I don't remember. My interests have changed. Like, I now understand more of what that novel is. Like, at the time... It's like, yeah, I knew it was true, but it felt like more of this piece of literature. And now I look at it and I'm like, oh, no, this is a case that made true crime a thing. And so it has a different lens. So if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's a great book. I mean, it's not easy by any means. It's hard. I mean, if you find it at the next time you're at a used bookstore, because let's be real, you you kind of could open up like a second home at a used bookstore. You could. And honestly, this is... No, I mean you. Oh. You could. <laughs> this is a... Not a dig, but this, this is a personal statement. You could live in a used bookstore and be happy. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, same, but you're like... I'm like, oh, I, I could do that and be happy. And you're like, God, me too. Like pulling out your sleeping bag like wouldn't that be fun i'm like <laughs> who would do such a thing and you're like kicking it back under the bed you're like yeah i don't know who would <laughs> i mean it's exactly like that because there's oh my god i think i've talked about it one time on the podcast but there's um a used bookstore in dallas and there's a couple of locations and it's called lucky dog books and you guys is it the one that's like the biggest thing in the world and there's just like miles of shelves and stuff yeah yeah the main one in garland is monstrous and you go to it and it's in this like totally unassuming shopping center where you feel like it's going to be the size of like i don't know like a ups store where it's just like really small like <laughs> it's huge it's gonna be the size of a used bookstore <laughs> it's huge but literally every time i go i leave with like six or seven books and i'm like oh my god because Okay, side note for people who care and uh, random facts about Brittany, but I have so many books that I need to read that I literally typed them all up, cut the titles out on a pieces of this paper, bitch. and I put it in a canister so I can draw them because it's so hard for me to decide what books to read. I'm going to put it up you, to fate, and it's so cute. It's You so are Pinterest. literally at the point where you have to Hunger Games your books. And the next tribute is in Cold Blood by Truman Cabote. And I'm like, yep, I'll read it. And then Firestarter by Stephen King pops out. Not volunteers tribute. I know. And I'm like, well, got to read that one too. I do love used bookstores. And this is one of those books you will most likely I mean, find at most of them. If you see it, I, I implore you to pick it up. Well, I'm going to be in Dallas in a couple weeks. So we're going to go? We're going. Yes. I'm like, Why have you not brought me yet? We're going to go here. We're going to go to the Goodwill flagship store. Yes. Because, y'all, I'm just saying we are in the middle of a pandemic, so wear your fucking masks. But we are at a point where a lot of people bought a lot of nice things when quarantine started and they got bored. And now they're saying, you know, I really just don't use this bread maker at all. I'm going to donate it to Goodwill. And I mean, I have a bread maker, a nice vacuum, and you know, you're supporting good things and helping, like helping people invest in their careers and Goodwill like pays to like train people and all that. Goodwill does a lot of great things, but yo, 
I love We it. are fully at the point where people are like, I got to declutter after quarantine and they're decluttering some good shit. So hit up your thrift stores. Also, most thrift stores, like, yes, hit up your Goodwill, but also hit up your local, like, it's called the thrift store because that's what it's called. Like the family owned, the locally owned ones, because there's great stuff there too. As small businesses need all the help we can give them. And now more than ever, they are holding our communities up in their skeleton hands. And just just be another hand to be like, you know what, bitch? I'm going to help you server lift this onto your shoulder. Well, and also buying things secondhand is so environmentally friendly. Yeah. Things, if like you... most of the things I own are secondhand. I love it. Oh, same. Because the thing is, you know, being green is all about reduce, reuse, recycle. You're reducing by not going out and buying new and you're reusing because... That shirt that's been worn four times, that's that fun Ralph Lauren polo that is now Tyler's favorite shirt <laughs> that looks nice. And it was probably 50, 60, but I don't know how much they are new because I don't buy them new because I got it for seven. Yeah. Well, Did... and the thing is, recycle. Brittany, how much was your printer? I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. I don't know if we've told y'all <laughs> this. Brittany needed a printer. She's working from home like a lot of us. And needed a printer uh, to have at the house. And so, you know, it's this big thing. They're hundreds of dollars to get a new one. Brittany went to the thrift store. How much How much was your printer? Well, my printer, it's older. Yes. Works great. Older means like 2014, y'all. Yeah. It has a printer, scanner, and fax machine. Black and white and color. It's a $350 Canon printer that I got for $3.00. $3. Like, yep. I'm just saying, I, like everyone else, when quarantine started, got a bread maker because... Me too! Look at me. And mine's probably from the mid-80s, I think. That's my best guess. I love it. I don't buy bread anymore. I make it, and I'm that bitch. And mine was $8, $10, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm just saying, it's and it's so joyful to go looking for something you want... And holy shit, here is a stand mixer for 14 bucks. I haven't found a stand mixer yet, but you bet your ass I'm looking. (laughs) And it's just, again, like my vacuum. It's like, I don't know, a $200 shark vacuum. I think I bought, I paid 20 for it. Oh, I forgot you got a vacuum. Yeah, it's a nice one. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't have a lot of money. This quarantine and the pandemic and the, it, it hit me hard. Hit me real hard. So I I don't have a ton to spend, but, you know, being able to not only know I'm getting something that means it's not having to be made new. It's not going to have to be created because it's already there. I'm not having to spend that kind of money. It's just as good. And I'm helping keeping these local businesses running. I don't, what's not to love? All I gotta say. I know. And I mean, recently, y'all know I moved. And so I had one of those like big adult purchases I had to make. I had to get a washer and dryer. And I was like, oh, those are so expensive. Not when you buy them used. And when you buy them from a place that sells used appliances that they have completely refurbished and it comes with a warranty and you pay about a third of the price that you would have paid if you bought it brand new. Mm, yes, please. So... 
That's the motherfucking thesis. All we're saying is, yes, it's really exciting to buy things brand new, but it is nothing in comparison to finding that thing for like pennies. That's in perfect condition. That may be last year's model and that's it. And it, and there's like no differences. Maybe there's like one button that's different. You guys, it is so exhilarating. Obviously, as you can tell, we are total thrifters. Buying secondhand is something that we have done our entire lives. We grew up on it. We love it. We're fed by it. I'm one of those people that going to the mall or buying something like just straight from the store, that buyer's remorse is always a little bit there in some way. Yeah. Not when I'm thrift storing. But at the end of the day, I guess what we're saying is that you can go to a used bookstore and buy In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. That was such a big tangent. (laughs) On deep discount. Because we are thrift nerds. But yeah, you guys, this was an intense episode. We recommend these movies. They're really good. Think about it when you're watching movies. Look at what the source is. Because I think you'd be surprised at how many of them are based on things that actually happened. God, can you imagine how much more we'd know if movies listed their sources in, like, APA format at the end in the credits? Do they? I don't read credits. I mean, they they don't. They, <laughs> they, they say people, and they might be like, based on the novel, by Hoonan Hanahan. Oh, that's a really good one. You can also find that at your used bookstore. It's, it's <laughs> really good. But if y'all also thought that this episode was really good, just like that book, um, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us those five stars. Let us know what you love. Uh, We fucking love hearing from y'all. And while you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on social for on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye. Bye.